The purpose of this is not to be uh, gory. The purpose of this is not to see, you know, how many stomachs we can cause to turn and things along those lines. Uh, This is more of the spiritual and the theological realities, though we will touch on some of the physical things that happened as well. Ideally, what I want to happen here is I want us to never sing songs like Surveying the Wondrous Cross again. When you think about it, what does it mean to survey the wondrous cross? This is what we're doing. I could have easily entitled this sermon series a survey of the cross, both the physical, the spiritual, and the theological realities that take place. What I hope happens is, is I hope that uh, uh, that we grow uh, in our understanding of the price that Christ paid for us. And in doing so, it will embolden us and strengthen us in our witness to see what He endured. There are people who say, ah, He was God. How hard uh, could it be? I think we're going to see even today a glimpse of of just how hard it was as we continue today in the first of three aspects that makes the cross uh, that made the cross of Christ unique and different um, than, than any other crucifixion that took place. We'll begin in reminding ourselves of a couple of verses. Isaiah chapter 52, and you're familiar with this verse already, so you won't necessarily uh, have to turn there. Uh, unless you want to. But remember that, that we're looking at this because we're asking ourselves the question, of the hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of people who died on the cross, how is it that this man's death on the cross, and this man, I'm saying with a capital M, I'm not saying that Jesus wasn't God, he was fully God, fully man. But what the question I had is, is what made the 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 death of Christ different and unique, and a propitiation, that's a good theological word, uh, uh, on our behalf. Propitiation means that His sacrifice satisfied, that's what propitiation means, propitiation means satisfied, that His sacrifice satisfied God's judgment against us. How did that happen? Well, as we've studied that, Isaiah chapter 52, verse 14 says, Just as many were astonishing my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of man. So, 700 years before Christ came, Isaiah is writing, and writing as a prophet, words given by God, and says, this is what will happen to our Messiah on the cross. While he was there, though most of the disciples had scattered, John was there, Mary was there, other people were at the cross. We'll see that in coming weeks when we consider the views of the cross. But they were there and right there in their presence in the midst of anyone who would have seen Jesus, his visions, his physical appearance changed right in front of them on the cross. And it changed in such a way that his human form would not even be recognizable. If you were to take him off the cross and put him there, and I'm not trying to be gory, but if you were to come across the physical 
body of Christ, you, according to Isaiah 53 and the language used there, and you'll understand more as we get into these aspects, you would not even recognize him as a human. His visions, his body was marred beyond human semblance. How bad was it? More than any man. And his form more than the sons of men. In order to capture this study, we're looking at it through the aspect of the cup. Jesus said to his disciples, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? He prayed to the Father, sweat drops of blood, agonizing over the realities of drinking this cup. And he says, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. And yet when he, when he stood up, he was resolved that he was going to drink the will, drink the cup, and that it was God's will for him to do so. And we saw in John chapter 18 that when they came to arrest him, Peter cut off Malchus's ear and Jesus said to Peter, put the sword in the sheath, the cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? He was resolved. He knew the purpose for which he was coming. He knew the things that were about to take place. And he stood up having heard from the Father that this was the only way was for him to drink the cup in its totality, in its entirety. And Jesus resolved to do just that. Three aspects of the cross. Last week we looked at Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 27. And here Jesus says that he could call in Matthew chapter 27 verse 53. Jesus said this. He told Peter again in another, in a, in another account of he, of Peter cutting off Malchus's ear. Here the, Matthew records the words. He says, put your sword back into its place for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Verse 53 we looked at last week. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? More than 12 legions of angels. We said a legion of angels would be 6,000. So that would be a total of 72,000 uh, angels that Christ could call. He could call 72,000 angels to come to his rescue. Now let's be clear. He didn't have to call one. He didn't have to call one. But he could have called 72,000 to come. In fact, he could have called more than that. How could he could have called more than that? Because how many angels are there? There are, according as we saw last week in Daniel chapter 7, there are myriads upon myriads and thousands upon thousands were attending to him. Daniel chapter 7 verse 10, there are thousands, plural, upon thousands, plural, of angels that were ultimately created. We saw that in the book of Revelation. The same language is used there in terms of the number of angels created. They are innumerable, but it's in the myriads of myriads and thousands upon thousands. We don't know, but it was so great a number that there was not a Hebrew number that they could equate with the number of angels that were ultimately created. What we also saw last week, just by way of review, is that in Revelation chapter 12, 
we see in the account of of Satan's fall from heaven, he himself was created as an angel. Sin was found in him. He was exposed for his sin. And just like oftentimes with us, when we ourselves find ourselves at a place uh, for example, uh, negative thoughts and attitudes, um, sin and things along those lines. We can't just keep it to ourselves. We have to go tell somebody else. We have to go share that with somebody else. And, and then at right next thing you know, we got this little group coming along doing their thing. And so, so Satan did the same thing. In fact, the Bible says in Revelation chapter 12 that his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven. Now, now, two things you got to look at there. The word star there means angels. How, how do I know that? Revelation chapter 9 verse 1 says, and then the fifth, Revelation chapter 9 verse 1 says, Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth, and the key of the bottomless pit was given to him, not it. Not it. So the star is a him, not an it. And he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke went up out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace, and on and on and on. So we can see that this... Um, it is an angel. And, and I'm, let's be clear. These third that came with him, they did not come against their will. They bought into the same lies that Satan <laughs> believed. And he overpowered and overwhelmed them. He, he enticed them to follow him into sin. They did not go against their will. You want to understand the tempting power of Satan in the presence of God in a perfect place. He could entice a perfect being to give up all of that and to follow him. That's pretty powerful enticement. So, so a third of the angels... So, so what we saw is, is if we just look at, and just for the sake of, so, so we understand there's an innumerable number of angels, and however many there are, a third of them was enticed to follow Satan and come with him. So now you have Satan and a third of the angels that would now be demons. Now something changed in the transition from being an angel in heaven, an angel uh, we, we've seen from God's Word in the past, they can fashion a body for themselves. In fact, Hebrews says that sometimes we entertain angels unaware. They fashion themselves. They come. They're involved in our life in some way that we don't see and understand. And we, according to, to Hebrews, could potentially be entertaining angels. We don't know who's going to walk in the door. We don't know who's going to be at that place. Who's going to be there to rescue, to redeem? Who's going to be there um, in terms of deliver us from a, 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 a temporal situation? Or who's going to be there to give us a word of advice along the way? It could be God directing us through an angel. They can fashion bodies for themselves and they can be visibly seen. But somewhere, something in the fall happened that demons are not able to fashion for themselves a body. And it must go all the way back to the garden because if you remember, Satan didn't fashion himself as a body and come to Eve. He had to first enter into the snake and then talk to Eve through the serpent. Through the serpent. 
So however many there are, myriads of myriads, thousands upon thousands, a third, however many a third are, would have, been, would have come down. We also saw that the reason Satan has the right to, to do uh, whatever he wants to do to Christ is because in Luke chapter 22, verse 53, what we saw is, is that this is the hour, Luke twenty two fifty three. this is the hour and the power of the darkness are yours. This is this hour and the power of the darkness are yours. Literally, this is the hour of you, plural, and the power or authority of the darkness. We saw in Matthew 16, Satan is working to keep Jesus from coming to the cross, speaking through Peter. In Luke chapter 22, verse 1, Satan enters into Judas. He enters into Jesus in order to bring Jesus to the cross. And the reason is, is because it was a designated time frame that God had granted the hour of the power of the darkness for Satan to unleash and unload on Christ anything that he possibly could unleash or unload on him. All the way up except for one thing. Remember what that one thing is? He could not take his life. Why? Because Jesus said in John chapter 10, He said, No one takes my life from me. I'll lay it down. I have the authority to lay it, lay it down, and I have the authority to pick it up. But everything up to that point, He could do for what purpose? The purpose not to purify Christ of his sin, but he could unleash and unload on Christ anything that he so desired on the cross. Hoping, perhaps, that Jesus would give up. That he would sin. That he would no longer be the unblemished Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. The first aspect of the cup that we introduced last week is there on the cross, Satan and his demons unleashed and unloaded on the Son of God everything in their power that they had. Normally, because Satan is the prince of the power of the air, he and his demons are scattered all across the globe. They're everywhere. They're working and moving. They're more there. They could cover the whole globe at one time. We don't know how many there are. We don't know where they are. They would have been everywhere. But on that day, at that hour, at that moment, is there any reason to believe that, that all of the darkness... All of the power of the darkness of the demons would be anywhere on the face of the earth. There would be nothing as important as what was taking place on Calvary on that day. And they would all be there. Surely Satan would summon all of those that were possibly available to be there. The only ones that would not be there perhaps would be those that we'll uh, learn about in the coming days who are uh, reserved in the abyss for judgment waiting to happen because of events that happened in Genesis chapter 6. But it would not surprise me. Y'all remember that? A subset of demons, they went beyond their domain. The, the, uh, they married, intermarried with the daughters of Satan, of, of uh, man. And that's where, uh, in Genesis 6, led up to the flood. 
Those subset of demons, according to 1 Peter 3.18, according to 2 Peter uh, chapter 4, and according to the book of Jude, are reserved in chains and everlasting darkness in the abyss. Remember when Jesus was there and He was performing miracles, there was a group of pigs, right? And He was going to cast out, and what they say? Have you come to torment us before it's time? And they said, listen, do not send us or cast us into the abyss. They know that that is a place to which they will ultimately be sent for a season. There's some subset of demons that are reserved. Did God let them go? Because it was the hour of the power of darkness to come and unleash and then send them back. We don't know, but it would not surprise me. It would not surprise me in the least if he did. The question today is, is what could they do? What could they do? We know the number. We know the things that are there. What could they do? Well, I want you to know that, that they are very, very powerful. Even when Daniel was praying, what we see in Daniel is Daniel's praying and God answers prayer, but one of Satan's demons holds up the angel that's delivering his his prayer for a period of time in such a way that the archangel, the super angel, if you will, Michael, had to come and get involved and then it still wasn't easy. So these are extremely powerful, powerful uh, beings. They're also, I want you to know that they are organized. They are organized. In fact, their order is known throughout the Bible and it's experienced in the world today. When I say they're organized, I want you to understand that, that this is not just some haphazard demons running all over doing whatever it is that they want. Ephesians 6, for example, tells us that they are organized. The angels are organized. You have cherubim, you have seraphim, you have archangels. And all of those angels on the good side perform different functions, different tasks, and things along those lines. In, in, in like manner, the demons are organized as well. Ephesians chapter 6 gives us some insight into, though we don't know their names, some insight into how they are arranged when... Uh, Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus and he says in verse 12, chapter 6, Ephesians 6, verse 12, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. That would be important for us to understand. That the issues that we have and the issues that we faith, beloved, are not flesh and flesh and, and, and blood and blood. The struggles that we face, the struggles that we face... The struggles that we face is the struggle that we face is not against flesh and blood. It's against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. And this is written out in such a way to give us some insight into the organization structure of the demons, of the demons. Now, um, so, so they're organized in some way. Now you say, Pastor, can you tell me the difference between those? I don't have a clue. I don't have a clue. But what I do know is, is I do know that they are arranged. I do know that they have functions. And I do know, one thing I do know is, is that 100% of them hate Jesus. And therefore, listen to me carefully, 100% of them hate you. And 100% of them, listen to me carefully, 
hate what we are doing. And in an organized manner, in an organized fashion, will seek to work its way in to cause division, to cause dissension, to cause disunity, to get us discouraged, to get us right in despair, to get us feeling overwhelmed because he wants us to quit. And as much as he used Peter to speak what Peter thought was truth that Jesus acknowledged was influenced by Satan, so too will he do that with us. Which is why we've got to be careful. We've got to be prayed up. And what we've also got to be is we've got to be sure. We've got to be sure that we understand. Beloved, our battle is not against flesh and blood. We have no issues with one another. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against these forces of darkness. They are, they are organized. We also see in 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, that the whole world lies in the power of this evil one. The whole world. This, listen, Satan just doesn't have the Muslim countries and he's blinded them to the truth of the gospel. Satan doesn't just have the Jews and have blinded them and, and there. Satan doesn't just have the lost countries and the things along those lines. Listen, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. I don't have time to go all the way back to Genesis, but you can do this study and look at your own. When Satan caused man to sin and deceived Adam and, and deceived Eve and Adam entered into sin, God did not curse Satan at that moment and remove or limit his power or curb what he's doing. At the end of the conversation in Genesis chapter 3, Satan was elevated and had more power. He was the prince of the power of the air. He knew that his demise was coming, but he also knew it was coming through the seed of woman, and he knew that if he could cause Adam and Eve to see, to see Adam and Eve to sin, he could cause every human being to sin because it was too easy. One thing, and they fell, and so he thought, yeah, there's going to be one coming, but he had no clue who it was, when they was, but he had centuries upon centuries upon centuries to tempt every single person born, and every single person was disqualified from being the head crusher. His power, 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, lies, uh, the, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. It's not just the material things that he's a part of, but it's the atmosphere that he's involved up in as well. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 2 says that Satan's activity is in the atmosphere as well. He is the prince of the power of the air. The prince of the power of the air. It's not just the material things. It's not that he's possessing everything and all of that. Even in the air himself, he is the prince of the power of the air. 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 1 says that he is behind the churches that preach false doctrines. 
He is behind the churches that, 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 that preach a false doctrine because he has, according to 1 John chapter 4 verse 1, he has the doctrines of demons. By the way, he has an unholy trinity. By the way, he has a, a table of demons, a Lord's Supper counterfeit as well. He has counterfeited everything that God has made and created and exposed. Satan has, has, um, uh, counterfeited. And according to Revelation chapter 9, verses 4 through 6, which we'll look at, he can inflict severe pain on humans. In Revelation chapter 9, we see the fifth angel sounded the fifth trumpet. And we'll get to this when we get there in our study of the book of Revelation when we pick that up uh, down the road. But, but I want you to just see this. It's talking about the, the star from heaven. He opened the bottomless pit, and out of the pit came locusts upon the earth, and power was given them as the scorpions of the earth have power. These are demons. And they were told not to hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree, but only the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. So, so notice here, Notice here, limitations are still placed on them by God. In this case, the limitations are you can't hurt the vegetation, you can't hurt the soil, but you can attack the men. So what do they have the capacity to do? Well, may I remind you that it only took two, two angels to destroy all of Sodom and Gomorrah. How much more could however many demons do here. You say, are you using those words interchangeably? I'm just showing you the same being, angels, right, of God coming in judgment could destroy a whole city. Those same type angels that have fallen, that were now demons, not listening to God, but listening to Satan, God still put limitations on them. We see that in the book of Job too. And they, their torment was like scorpions. Notice what it says in verse 5, Revelation 9, 5. And they were not permitted to kill anyone, but to torment. You see the word torment for five months? And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings a man. Verse 6. And in those days, how bad is it? Men will seek death and will not Find it. They will long to die and death flees from them. This is a subset that comes in judgment in the tribulation period of time. How much more? How much more could they come and inflict? On our Savior. Now, now let's just take the minimum numbers, right? Jesus said he could have called 72,000 angels. So 72 was two, two-thirds at a minimum, right? Just using Jesus' number. A third, if, if Satan's part was one-third and 
God's part's two-thirds, and two-thirds are 72,000. The other third that would have fallen would be 36,000. Let me see, wait a minute, wait a minute. 36,000 is half. No, no. You have 36, 36, and 36, 72, right? 36, 36, and 36, 96. Two of those make up 72,000. One third make up 36. You following me? All right. Uh, Leah, Trip, and Joel, come stand with me. Please. 36 and 36 are 72, and 36 are 96. All right, so uh, Joel's here, and Joel represents one third of the angels. Angel or demon? You can be the angel. You can be the angel. All right, 36,000. Princess, come stand with me. You can be the <laughs> angel the too. Demon. No, no, no. Even though you're dressed in a black shirt today, we'll let you be an angel as well, right? Jesus said he could have called 72,000 angels. 36,000 and 36,072. A third demon. So the next third. So how much is this one? 36. And how much is this one? 36. And how much is this one? 36. This is 72,000. Together they make 96,000. If this is two-thirds, this is one-third. This is how many? 36. Well, I'm not getting half of 36. I'm so how many is that then this is 36 and that's 36 so it's still 36 yeah I study theology and teach English, not math. <laughs> but you get the idea. How much is this? 36,000. How much is this? Two-thirds. Two-thirds. Two-thirds, right? Two-thirds angels. That's what Jesus could call. Another one-third demons. How much is that? That he could have called. How many would it take to destroy the entire city of Sodom and Gomorrah? Two. How many did it take to hinder Michael and Daniel, and to hinder the answer of God's prayer to Daniel? One. And the archangel Michael came and struggled and wrestled. By the way, they also struggled and wrestled over the bones of Moses too. So you get the idea. All right. Thank you so much. Appreciate y'all demonstrating how bad my math skills are. Though I was partially right. It was 36. It was 36. Brother, we're on the same team. I thank you. I appreciate you relating to me and my weakness. So having said that, that would be minimal numbers. That would be minimal numbers. Now, how many are there total? And how many would one third of the total be and how much pain and suffering could they inflict on the Son of God in the hour of the power of the darkness 
am the only limitation being, the only limitation being, they could not take his life. Now, we have, now, why couldn't they take his life? Because God said so. Now, we see in Revelation 9, God limits the activity of demons there. We saw in the book of Job, Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2, God gives them freedom and limits the total capacity to which they could do. Right? What about in your life and in my life? God gives them freedom up to the point not beyond which we, in God's strength, are able to endure. Right? That's what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. That He's not going to tempt you beyond what you are able and is going to give you a way of escape. The reason that Peter and James and John could not go with Jesus, the reason they could not go with Jesus is not when Jesus says, where I'm going, you are not able to go. It's not because they didn't have permission. That's important for you to understand. It's that they didn't have the ability to withstand and endure the things that Jesus withstood and endured. They would have caved before it ever got started. How much more can, can Jesus, how much more is He able to endure beyond what we are able to endure? Beloved, he, oh, look, what does Satan got to do to trip you up? It doesn't take much, does it? It doesn't take much to trip you up. It doesn't take much to trip me up, right? Um, all it takes is, right, a fleeting thought, and we're done. All it takes is a lustful thought. All it takes is just, just a little planting of deception, and we carry it away. You, you and I, though we don't have to be, God's not going to tempt us beyond what we are able. He's going to make a way of escape. God is not going to place... We sin, particularly as believers, we sin, listen to me carefully, because we want to. We choose to. We choose to. When you got saved, the you were saved from the penalty of sin. Therefore, you don't pay for your sin. The power of sin, the Bible says, was broken in your life. In that you no longer have to sin. And one day when Jesus comes back, we are going to be saved from the very presence of sin. Right? We are here now. The Holy Spirit of God lives inside of us. Colossians says it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. Right? We are sealed into the day of redemption. All the promises of God are yes and amen. We've been delivered from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the light of the beloved Son. Right? All of our sins have been nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. I want you to understand and think about what's going on here. Listen, all, with all of that being true, we still get tripped up with a cross luck. We still get tripped up in such an easy capacity even when we don't have to. You and I would not have the capacity to overpower even one demon that was allowed to come and to unleash 
and unload on us. He would come in our presence and say, boo, and we would run and act like the devil. And here is Christ, our Savior, on the cross, stressed with blood, endured the physical beating and the torture of all the things that they did to him to prepare him to go on the cross. Was his physical beating more intense? I'll promise you it was for a couple of reasons. Number one, who he was. But number two, remember it was Passover and he had to die before Passover came. And they would bring them basically almost to the point of death Hang him in shame to die on the cross and then came around, broke the legs of the thieves beside him, punctured a spear in his side in order to speed the process along. So in that weakened, frail, fragile state of what he endured, you add the power of the hour of the darkness to that, and not according to what you and I are able to endure, but according to what he was able to endure. And beloved, that's the first, that's the first element of the cup that Christ drank on your behalf and my behalf. And may I simply say this, it was the easiest one. The next two that are coming are far, far worse than what happened here with the hour of the power of the darkness. And may I remind you, he did this to purchase your pardon and to purchase mine. And he did this to provide a way for us to be part of the family of God, to be promised all of heaven. He did this so that we could be part of the family of God on this earth. I don't know about you, but I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. I'm so glad that I'm a part. But I wouldn't be a part of the family of God and you wouldn't be part of the family of God if he had not endured the cross. When you think about this and you think about what he endured, I don't want you to feel bad. Sometimes when I think about the sacrifices that people make in order for me to be blessed or for me to be comfortable or for me to be, right? I get, a, I get a little sad. I'm just not good at that stuff, you know? I get worked up over those things. I don't know about you, but I struggle to let people do things for me. I really do. I really do. It's pride, whatever it is. When you think about that, I want you to feel the weight, <coughs> but I also want you to, to know this, that, that the Bible says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. 
Was it joyful at the time? No. Joy has nothing to do with the circumstances that we face. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Beloved, you and I can rejoice and be glad that Jesus took our punishment upon him. And as we, forg- as we repent of our sins, and as we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, as we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we too can be saved. If you don't have the absolute assurance of your salvation and pardon, hopefully today, and among the other sermons that we've preached in this series, that that God will open your eyes to see how much He loves you and how much He cares for you and how much He wants to be your Lord and your Savior. In church, how much He wants us to live in gratitude for the things that He's done and go tell the world the good news of Jesus. Let's pray together.